picking up where we left off in our conversation with Marshall Gans. The word that's coming to mind in our conversation is political capital. It seems like we're deploying our resources and leverage to address individual issues, but it's almost like we're playing whack-a-mole. It feels like maybe we need to set aside the urgent to focus on the important, which would be putting that political capital into building power. That's exactly the question. And see, for some reason, the other side seems to get it. Now, it's easy to attribute monolithic character to the other side. But if you look at ALEC, at the role of ALEC, and the assault on public sector unions, I mean, right away, that was so strategic because that's how you cut off resources at the state level. You both weaken the union as union, but you're also cutting off the money that it takes to finance democratic politics. So that was a power strategy. Right now, they're in a power strategy about voting. And for some reason, we don't seem to, I don't know, why don't we do that? Yeah. So the conservative strategy seems to be going unapologetically after power with the recognition that values are the keys to power. It's also a movement-based strategy. Because, you know, when I was in high school, back in the day, my senior year, I was being recruited by the John Birch Society in Bakersfield, California because I was a promise, right? And so they already had their local Christian anti-communist crusade bookstore. And they had this movie called Operation Abolition that showed how the communists had taken over the universities and were, you know, going to destroy democracy. Now, they were doing outreach. They had their bookstore. In other words, there was a movement coming out of the 50s with roots in the racial fear, coupled with this other no, boy, how to put it. I mean, there was a racial dimension to it, a religious dimension to it, and an anti-state, anti-democracy kind of dimension to it. But, you know, it flourished. I mean, Barry Goldwater was nominated presidential candidate in 64 by the Republicans. Then it was reversed. But there's been a core movement that's gone through different forms, but it's been at the heart of this thing. From my perspective, the sin of the corporate side was to make a deal with them in the 70s. And with Nixon, it was a deal. It's like, okay, Southern strategy, we love your racist stuff because it's common ground with our, we don't want regulation, we don't want taxes, we don't want all this stuff. Hey, we got a convergence here. And so it was kind of a deal with the devil. And the Democrats had made their own deal with the devil before the 60s in terms of the resistance to anything that dealt with race. But that deal that was made in the 70s, that's been a real problem. And the thing is that what they thought was the tail has become the dog. It's like, oh, no, we, we got the wealth. But yeah, we'll use them. Well, guess what? You know, guess who's being used? The point I want to make is there has been a core kind of set of values, may not be mine, highly committed people, and they've been working at it. It's not a conspiracy. It's not like some plot. It's quite out in the open. There was a great movie about Phyllis Schlafly on TV. It's called Mrs. America. Because Phyllis Schlafly is a brilliant organizer who coupled the anti-choice movement with the conservative movement in the 70s and really played a critical role in building the women's base for that whole conservative thing. It's a very good series. So they've had good organizers, too. That's so interesting. You know, switching gears, I'd like to go back to the word depth. 
and in particular how it factors into campaigning. There's all this money being raised by progressives to challenge conservative incumbents, but then you have someone like Jamie Harrison who raised $100 million and still lost. That goes back to this problem of the political industrial complex. I mean, it goes back to turning politics into a business, a business of communications and marketing, but not of bringing people together. And yeah, when I get fund appeals for campaign, I think, okay, what's this going to be used for? Well, it's going to make some consultant rich, basically. If you had $100 million to run a Senate campaign, what would you spend it on? People. What does that look like? It looks like a lot of what we were doing in the Obama campaign in 2007 and 8. We were actually building an organized grassroots base. Now, the problem is that the organization didn't belong to the people. It belonged to Obama, and he didn't want to use it once he got elected. He sort of went through a big strategy shift from mobilizing support to minimizing opposition. It was a shift. And from my perspective, that's one of the great missed moments in our history. But you build it, you bring people together, you organize them. Look, after Trump, there was indivisible. There was all these things. Talk about a massive mobilization. For the most part, though, they weren't being brought together. There wasn't an effort to structure it. There wasn't training. There wasn't I mean, there was some places, but it was an opportunity. <laughs> Even the kind of structure we had in the Obama campaign would have helped. So it's developing enough skilled leadership, but also ways of telling the story, of interpreting, understanding what's going on, so as to be able to make that shift. Because our politics just, look, Bernie sparked a big deal, right? When Bernie, the first time uh, Bernie ran, whoa, look at all that. Then he formed something called Our Revolution. It's a disaster. You know, couldn't govern itself, internal fights, just, you know, had no staying power. DSA is trying to build organization, but it's very, very small. It can't reach out and build a really broad base like the kind it would take. Biden is so interesting because he speaks human. In other words, he doesn't speak ideology. He speaks human. He speaks values, actually. And in a way, that's exactly what we need. But we need it in a much deeper, more powerful way. Progressives often get caught up on the ideological nuances of this, that, or other. It make no difference in people's daily lives. When you have an activist core that has no constituency. In other words, there's a big difference in a meeting with somebody that has a base they have to answer to because they got elected and somebody who has emails that they can mobilize that they're not accountable to in any way. Very different. So when I talk about depth, I'm talking about going deep in terms of people and their daily lives and getting at the core things, not just the superficial things. Because the core things, people, they want their kids to have a future. And in doing this narrative work around different parts of the world, boy, it just hits you again and again and again, how fundamental the choices are that we face growing up and the sources of hurt, pain, where we get hope. The deeper you go, the greater commonality you find, commonality of experience. And the more up here you go, the more difference you find. In other words, abstraction is not how you create unity. It's depth is how you create unity. So you're talking about macro-level depth. And then there's also the difference on a personal level of being involved in, say, a demonstration 
where you're interacting with people and potentially putting yourself at a risk yeah. versus writing a check to a campaign or sharing a statement on social media. Absolutely, because we learn emotionally, right? We learn cognitively. We also learn experientially. You know, I saw when someone would be sort of lukewarm on the union when we're organizing farm workers. Once they were on a picket line for an hour, their whole perspective shifted. And it wasn't the argument. It wasn't the story. It was like their direct experience of being cut out yep. and finding solidarity with others. Those kinds of experiences, they're transformative. In the Obama campaign, the experience people had in those local teams was real. In other words, they actually could make decisions. They actually worked as a team. They actually experienced a lot. I was talking to the former chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party that started then doing some organizing after the lunch had been eaten by the other side. Well, five of the groups that appeared were groups that went all the way back to Obama because that was how they first experienced politics that were real to them. Yeah. And what we haven't seen is organizations that reach that scale, that find a way to generate resources that allow them to maintain their own independence and that stay in place beyond elections. You know, and for that to shift, one of two things has to happen. One is there's a candidate who actually believes they need organization to govern. Or there's an organization that is able to sustain itself independent of the candidate, but chooses the candidate or supports the candidate. And actually, we have someone running for governor here in Massachusetts who I think has much more of that vision of organizing not just to win the campaign, but to govern. And I think it'll be a very interesting experiment here to see if we can do that. Interesting. Can we talk about leadership for a moment? I'm thinking of transactional and transformational leadership and what they mean for this inflection point we're at right now. Leadership's one of those words like justice, like what do you mean? It's used to describe so many things. And so when I'm talking about leadership, well, the foundations in these three questions posed by Rabbi Hillel, when he was asked, how do I decide what to do with my life? He said, well, first ask yourself, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Not selfish, but self-regarding. Like, who are you? What do you bring to this? And then second, what am I if I am for myself alone? Meaning to be a who, a human being, and not a what, is to recognize the inherent relationality of being a human being. And then finally, it's if not now, when? Not about jumping into moving traffic, but sort of recognition that you can't really learn to do well what you want to do until you actually begin to do it. In other words, there's always elements of risk in action. And so for me, the interaction of the self with the us with the now is at the heart of what leadership is about. It's not just me. It's not just you. It's how that works together. And that it's all about dealing with the uncertain. Because when everything's working, you don't need leadership. The system works. So leadership it has a particularly adaptive role. It has a creative role. It has a role of agency in circumstances. And to do that, you have to treat it as a question of skills, a question of strategy, and a question of courage. It's a multidimensional thing. So the definition that I use for leadership is that it's about accepting responsibility for enabling others to achieve shared purpose under conditions of uncertainty. So it is not a diva model of leader. 
It's not like the great charismatic persona. It's a form of interacting with other people around the creation of collective capacity. That's how I think of leadership. It's an interdependence. It's not command and control. It's much more eliciting capacity. And, you know, transactional leadership, which James McGregor Burns made that original distinction, it was all about exchanges. You do this, I do, you know, I tell you. And what he called transformational leadership is really what I'm talking about. It's about bringing people into relationship with one another that they see possibilities they didn't see, strength they didn't see themselves and others, that they find a common purpose. That work is what I mean by leadership. And then if you look at it that way, then leaders are developing more leaders <laughs> all the time. It's kind of like learners become teachers. And if you look at how movements spread, like evangelical movements, that's how they spread. It's people who, you know, get the spirit and then they go out and they make more and they make more. So there's a human kind of infrastructure that gets you to scale. I mean, it has historically, there's a little thing called Christianity that kind of started as a movement. All the movements before, you know, they depended on leaflets, they depended on horses, but they were spread people to people. Now, once you take people out of the equation, then it becomes much more problematic because you know what happens when we're on email, on social media? Each person becomes a symbol. They're not a person. They're a symbol. They're these set of words. So the constraints, the empathetic constraints and enablements that go to interpersonal communication, they're not there. So we can do whatever the hell. And it just becomes savage. And so it actually undermines the capacity of people to relate to one another. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I've been teaching online for a long time. We teach interpersonal stuff and all that, but it's because you see people, it's intentional, you're trying to do that. But leadership, then, when we teach it, we break it down into five core practices of building relationships and telling stories, which is about motivation, strategizing, action, and structure. And so you can do that in a neighborhood and you can do it in a country. It's sort of like getting that Beethoven's symphonies depended on each note being right. In other words, they weren't constructed as this. They were constructed by putting the pieces together. And that's kind of what it takes, is putting the pieces together, but with a vision of something whole. That's what I mean by leadership. Yeah. I am curious whether you see strong leaders emerging. I hope so, you know, because they don't just appear, you know, it's not like, how can I say First of all, the people we look at as great charismatic leaders, if you really look at it, first of all, they had teams. They weren't just by themselves. They often came out of the tradition, the tradition of preaching in the black church. I mean, there are a lot of really good preachers. So it's like Dr. King didn't just come from nowhere. He came out of a tradition of that kind of moral communication. And he was a master of it. Where are people learning how to do this? In other words, Okay, in churches, people learn how to do that, right? Now, in politics today, Obama was a practitioner of that. He was good, and he understood about narrative. He really did, and it was a source of real power. Now, since then, who was cultivated? Who was grown in that? Who learned from that? What intentionality was there by saying, hey, this is an important part of leadership. Now, you don't have to be Barack Obama. All of us can do this. We all have the potential. We were trying to do that in the camp of Obama. It's exactly that. Because people would come and say, 
I'm going to tell Obama's story. We said, no, learn to tell your story because your story is what's going to persuade your neighbor about why you support this guy. And so, oh, I have that potential. Yes, you do. See, it's within us and it takes conditions, circumstances, learning. Lawyers used to be like that, you know, Clarence Darrow. Now, Gandhi didn't make much in the way of speeches, right? Gandhi spoke the rhetoric of action. His rhetoric was all in what he did and very little in the words, but that was a rhetoric of action. There's a lot of different ways to communicate this kind of vision, but there have to be places where it matters. Now, in a typical political campaign, does it matter? Really? I mean, Hillary could never give a speech worth a damn. It mattered, but they couldn't help her. I show my class six minutes of Hillary and six minutes of Michelle Obama from the Democratic Convention 2016. They're both sort of talking about themselves. You know, Michelle speaks entirely in narrative moments. The basic unit of narrative is the moment. There's a challenge, there's a response. Now she's talking about the day the big black cars and the guys with guns came to take the kids to school when they were in the White House. And their faces are pressed up against the window of these cars. And she turns to Barack, she says, what have we done? What have we done? And see, you become present to that moment because she's present to that moment. And you get the emotional meaning of the moment or breaking up in a house built by slaves and seeing her beautiful black daughters playing on the lawn. These are all moments. Hillary, there isn't a single moment in her whole talk. It's references too. And what that means is she's never emotionally present in such a way that people can even begin to get her. You watch that contrast, man, it is so striking because Hillary's just over here. And it's kind of like by walling yourself in, you wall the world out. And I'm sure she had a lot of very good reasons for the way she developed that kind of protectiveness, being married to Bill for all those years. God knows, I, you know, but it doesn't serve you, doesn't serve you well. And, uh, you know, but Obama knew how to do it. Michelle knows how to do it. It isn't just otherworldly, I guess is the point. Yeah. It's a skill. It's a skill. It's a craft. If we were saying, you got to be a master of calculus to be president or nuclear physics, no. You got to be able to tell good stories. We're all equipped for that. I mean, we tell our kids stories all the time. We know what stories are, but it's implicit. It's not explicit. And so that's what we've been trying to do is come up with a way that it can be made explicit so you can treat it as a craft and you can then learn to do it and communicate meaningfully about core values to people. I just think the potential's all over the place out there, but venues are needed, you know, Legislatures are no longer people giving great heroic speeches. That's not what happens. Democratic conventions of production is not a real thing. It's a ritual, but it's not even that good a ritual. This year was better. The online one I thought was better because you actually got to see more real people. Yeah. Can I ask what gives you hope? I guess the thing that gives me the most hope is that I get to go to class and have a conversation with the future. In other words, I get to work with people who are all wrapped up in the future and who want to deal with it. And they're from every part of the world. It's kind of like Walter Brueggemann wrote this book called The Prophetic Imagination. He says that transformational vision comes at the intersection of two things. One, criticality, a clear view of the world's hurt, of its need, of its pain, and hope, a sense of its possibilities, its promise. 
One without the other goes to despair or it goes to irrelevance. Together, it can be a powerful transformational energy. Young people come of age with a critical eye on the world they find, almost of necessity hopeful hearts. Generation change is a really important thing, and it's all around us. I think that's one thing. One of my students just started the institute at Harvard Law School on mass incarceration. This guy had him as an undergrad. See, teaching gives you a sort of way to be long-term and short-term at the same time because you're investing in people in such a way that then they can go and grow and build. That's why investing in people is so damned important. Not using them, but investing in them. That's what organizing does. It's an investment in people and their capacity to work together. But we don't think that way. We think just, oh, spend, spend, spend. So the first source of hope I have is what I get to do. My online class, we have 160 students from 31 countries. We get to do it in a global context, which is also so... Now, these are people who are shaping the future. They are maybe 30s or so. I'm not expecting, oh, some X thing. I'm creating possibility. I'm creating potential. I'm creating capacity. And you don't know what's going to come of that. So I get hope from that on a regular basis. I get hope from Sunrise. I get hope from the George Floyd reaction. These things that are happening you have to recognize them for what they are, even as you try to grapple with how to make them more. But you can't dismiss it. So look for where the energy is. That's what I try to do, is work where the energy is. And there's a lot out there. You know, there's this group called Girls Track. You know about it? It was started by two, two black women who were concerned about health. And so they put together this movement really around walking and health among black women. And they now have a little over a million people. And now they want to become organizers. To me, whoa, that's hopeful. See, they built something that brought people together around improving themselves and each other and say, okay, that got us so far. Now we got to go to the next step, which is we got to get some control over the politics. Yeah. So I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. You're not the first guest on the show to say that. <laughs> if you lose hope, you got nothing. There is a real logic to hope, which is look at all the crazy things that happen. Good things happen, bad things happen. We tend to remember the bad things more because they challenge us. But often out of that comes the capacity to create good things, not necessarily. But we are all authors of our time and the future. We have that capability. Yep. I think for me, the most poignant example of that is spending time in prisons and working on prison policy, just recognizing the capacity of each of us to do far more harm than we'd like to believe, but also to do far more good than we might believe we can. But you got to be willing to take the risks. You got to have enough faith to actually take the risks. Because if you don't take the risks, nothing's going to happen. No, not really. Yeah. And there's so much in all our traditions about sources for that. This is maybe an aside, but I've been studying Quran for the last year and a half, every Wednesday night for an hour. And I've been reading, well, the Hebrew Bible with a friend. We finally got through Job and Ecclesiastes. So now we're working on the New Testament. And reading the Gospel of Matthew is amazing. If you really read it as an adult and you try to 
think of the context in which people were doing what they were doing. It's really rich. There are these ancient sources of human beings struggling with what it is to be human and where to find hope and all the rest of it. You can get hung up on the particular circumstance of living in tents or whatever, or you can actually read for what's being shared about human beings and the challenges we face. It's there. It's deep there. It's sort of like recovering from the past what we need in order to be able to shape a future that we want. It isn't imitating the past, but boy, there's a lot to learn, a lot of shoulders on which to stand. Mm -hmm.